Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, it's a, such a joy to be here. Listen, we're going we're gonna to cut up some difficult truths today. We're going we're gonna to work through a chapter in the Bible, which is uh, often avoided but very, very necessary for a church, especially a young church. And so I'm really looking forward to today. Today's not necessarily going to be one of those messages that I think you walk out of here all charged up saying, yeah, that was for me. This is for us corporately as a church. And this chapter in particular is one of the reasons why we as a church put a high value on just working our way through books of the Bible because it causes us to not be able to avoid chapters like this. The next couple weeks are going to be pretty weighty things that we're going to deal with uh, in this particular Sunday, discipline in the church. Uh, Next few weeks, uh, sin uh, that is uh, sexual in nature, how we should handle those things. And so uh, we're going to do it with some humility and some uh, hopefully strength. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us, and then then we'll, we'll get going on it. Oh, Lord, as we open up your word, we do thank you for how powerful and true it is. It is your inspired, completely true truth for us. You and your great providence have superintended these words so that they would be delivered to us today so that we would have a sufficient picture of you and what it means to obey you and live for you in our joy and for your glory. And so, Lord, help us today. Humble us. We are, we are selfish, self-centered default individualistic Americans who, who these truths in particular that we're going to talk about today, we're just so unused to this biblical truth, even if we've been Christians for a long time. So Lord, would you help us? Would you give us grace? And ultimately today, Lord, would you help us realize that the message today is not about church discipline or excommunication, but ultimately it is about the gospel, your glory, and the joy of your people. So help us see that today. Lord, as we're gathered here today, we do think of the folks in Arizona who uh, went through that terrible tragedy, in particular uh, the families who lost loved ones at that terrible shooting yesterday. We pray for the congressman who is uh, battling for her life. We do pray that you would would be with that family and and, uh, be with the doctors as they minister to her. And Lord, we do pray for all of our elected officials. We pray for President Obama. We thank you for him. You've given him to us as our authority for this time in our nation's history. And we do pray that you'd give him wisdom. We pray for our military leaders. We pray, Lord, for the conflicts, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. We do pray, God, that you would guard our soldiers, that you'd protect them, that the mission would be completed as soon as possible, and that they would be able to come home quickly. And we pray, Lord, that doors for the gospel would open up in both of those places. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention to this text, I do pray that you'd give me clarity and that you'd give us a collective humility, and that the person and work of Jesus would stand forth from our time together in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I pray, Lord, that if there's somebody in this room who does not know you as their Savior, that even as we talk about how the church should handle sin within itself, that they would see such a beautiful picture of the gospel, that they would, that they would be cut to the heart, and they would turn from self-reliance and sin and trust in you. I pray for Christians in this room also, Lord, that their hearts would be encouraged that we would realize how beautiful and how important the local church is and that you would stir our affections for Christ and for one another. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a kid growing up in the late 70s and early 80s, I was a big sports fan, and um, inevitably there was this guy that seemed to make it into every major sporting event in the United States. And he would somehow find a ticket and then he would find a ticket behind, you know, in front of the TV cameras, whether it was the end zone or, or you know, if it was the Olympics, he just happened to be on. He, you remember him. He had a big, crazy afro, and he usually had it sort of dyed in sort of rainbow colors, and he would always hold up this sign, John 3.16. And that came to be, obviously, probably because of the truth of that verse, but also in just popular American culture because of that crazy guy who, by the way, I think is now in a mental hospital somewhere. He really went crazy later in life. But, but that 
that is probably the most well-known Bible verse, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in many ways, that Bible verse, that truth is sort of misinterpreted, that if you just agree with that, that all of a sudden you're a Christian. Doesn't, we, we forget about the rest of the biblical truths of repentance and trust in Christ, turning from our sin and having faith in what Jesus did and obeying him in our lives. But I think in our modern-day culture, in 2010, with the relativistic, pluralistic culture that we live in, probably another Bible verse has become even more popular than John 3.16, and that's Matthew 7.1, where Jesus says, Judge not, lest you be judged. And sometimes people will misinterpret that verse and just sort of throw it up and say, Oh, well, you can't judge me. You can't judge me. Uh, you, you can't have any say with, with what I do with my life. And again, that verse is often devastatingly misapplied and misunderstood. But in fact, the Bible, the whole counsel of God's Word, does say that there are instances when we should judge each other. And one of them is when we are in a local church and there is a person in our local church that is engaging in unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin, meaning that is a sin that a person is willfully engaging in and they are realizing that it is out of bounds of Scripture, and they are going willfully against the teaching of Scripture and engaging in it anyway. This is what unrepentant sin is. And before we start reading chapter 5, let me just give you an overview of what Paul says in chapter 5 so you can understand the context before we read through it. Remember in the first few chapters of Corinthians, Paul has been correcting the theology of the Corinthians, focusing them back on Christ. It was a very gifted church, but they were very carnal and selfish, and so they were starting to uh, be very divisive and divide into factions. And Paul has spent the first few chapters telling them that they should remember Christ, remember the gospel, be humble, to not focus on individual personalities. And now in chapter 5, he begins to address the specific problems within the Corinthian church. And the first one that he really addresses that is a specific problem is this man in the church who evidently is having an incestuous relationship, a sexual relationship outside of marriage with his father's wife. So we don't really understand what the whole situation is there. Was it, is his father still alive and it was, it was a, polygam- a polygamous situation and he was having an affair with one of his stepmoms or had his father passed away and this was now his stepmother and now he was engaged in an incestuous relationship with her We don't know all of the specifics, but we do know this, is that he was engaged in a sexual relationship with this woman outside of marriage, and oh, by the way, it's compounded by the fact that this was his, probably his stepmom, the description we get is his father's wife. And to compound this problem, the Corinthian church was evidently aware of this and was doing nothing about it. In fact, as we'll read here in a moment, it seems to be that they were sort of boasting in their tolerance of this sin by this man. And so Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 5, to correct the church and to deal with this situation. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read through it. We're going to look at three reasons why Paul says that this brother should be excommunicated from the church. In other words, kicked out of the church for this time. Three reasons why this brother should be excommunicated from the church. And then after we go through the chapter and look at those three reasons, then we're going to come back and look at three just sort of pastoral thoughts about how we work together through this truth as a church. So the first reason that Paul gives, and we can put this up on the screen right now, the first reason that Paul gives that that this brother or a person that is in unrepentant sin should be excommunicated in love from the church is for the good of the person in unrepentant sin. For the good of the person in unrepentant sin. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So Paul is saying, even the world, even the unbelievers, even non-Christians are sort of covering their eyes at how, how crazy this particular sin is. Verse 2, And you are 
arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And Paul is correcting him. Now he's saying, it seems to me from the reports I'm getting back, is that you are sort of pridefully saying that, oh, you can imagine maybe what they were saying is, oh, the grace of God is so strong here that we can get over these things. It's no big deal, you know? Sometimes we see this type of language in the church. Well, we'll just kind of love that person. We're not going to really deal with their sin and we'll baptize them if they're in some crazy sin or we'll do this thing. Oh, well, we're, we're so gracious we can handle that. Maybe that line of thinking is in the church. They're boasting in their tolerance rather than in the clarity of who Christ is. And Paul says you should be mourning about this. And in fact, this particular sin is so drastic and their tolerance of it was so drastic that Paul immediately says this guy's got to be He's got to be removed from among you. And we'll talk about why Paul is so drastic. Verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Verse 5. Listen to this. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Those are strong words. First reason that Paul gives that this brother or any brother in unrepentant sin should be excommunicated from the church is for the good of that person. Let me me work through a couple reasons. Their tolerance was causing them, in effect, to lie to this man about who Jesus is and what he calls us too. And so they had been faced with this brother's sin, and now they were reacting to it by tolerating it, and by their tolerance of it, they were in de facto giving, giving their endorsement of his lifestyle. It brings up a question that I want to ask us here as we're kind of working through this first point, that it's for the good of this person to be put out of the church. How do we react to one another sin when we become aware of it in the local church. Look, if we do life together like we are trying to do here in a New Testament way, not just sort of showing up and being distant, sort of Sunday morning, cordial, but just, you know, keep each other at an arm's length Christians, but if we really get to know one another, we will become aware of one another's sin and shortcomings and failings. And so how do we react to one another's sin? I want to kind of put three categories in your head. These are sort of painting with a broad brush, but I think there's three general ways that we react to uh, one another sin. The first way is that, is that we tolerate it. And that's what the Corinthian church was doing here. They were, in this case, avoiding his sin. There's many reasons why we might tolerate one another's sin. First is that it might make us feel better about our own lives. When we hear about the sin of a brother or sister, and maybe we have been very close or have committed that sin in our own lives, When we hear about the sin of a brother or sister, one of the reasons why we are tempted to keep quiet about it or tolerate it or just perpetuate them living in it is because because we have unrepented sin, undealt with sin in our own lives. And in that moment, our insecurity causes us to tolerate it because we have a very warped view of grace where we think, well, what right do I have? No, it is, and we'll read about this here in a moment, it is in fact our duty to love one another in humility. So sometimes we tolerate it and avoid it because it makes us feel better about ourselves. The second way that we sometimes handle one another's sin is through self-righteousness. We look down the end of our nose at a person who is struggling with a particular sin, even a particularly destructive sin like this brother does. And if we've never struggled with it, we look down the end of our nose at it and become very judgmental. Friends, this is the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, the man who says, I thank God that I'm not like this man. And that's just as bad as giving license or freedom or tolerance to sin because we combat that brother's failure with our own sin of self-righteousness. And often in a church setting, this will lead to a sort of fundamentalism where people are never encouraged to let their guard down. And when self-righteousness 
dominates a church culture that is almost an impossible place for a person to truly deal with their own sin and repent of their sin and be forgiven and receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because everybody is instinctively by default cringing and self-protecting when there is an air of self-righteousness in a church. And so sometimes we deal with sin in the church with tolerance because it makes us feel better. We just don't have the energy to deal with it. And sometimes we deal with it with self-righteousness. And both of those are heirs and are death to the church's ability to advance the gospel. And the third way that I think Paul is advocating here, and I pray is the heartbeat of this church, is that we deal with our own sin and one another's sin with broken-hearted boldness. With broken-hearted boldness. This is what Jonathan Edwards the great American pastor. I've read this many times. I realize that. Um, and some of you may have already memorized this because I've read it so many times. Jonathan Edwards was a great pastor in American history, probably the greatest theologian in American history, one of the greatest minds in American history. And he uh, was the great preacher and theologian behind the first great awakening in the 1700s. He wrote uh, 70 daily resolutions. This was number eight that he wrote as a 21-year-old man, by the way. He says about this this thing of being engaged in and seeing one another sin. He says, resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of confessing my own sins and misery to God. What a great mindset to be in that when we are confronted with the sin of a brother or sister in our faith family, that it promotes self-examination and humility in ourselves and it develops in us us this this context of broken-hearted boldness because when a brother that we are connected to as part of the body of Christ falls or is ensnared by sin, we all are caught up in that. We all have to deal with that. When a brother or sister hurts, we all hurt, even if they are hurting because of their own actions. And Edwards here is advocating this deep and abiding humility that promotes and paves the way for broken-hearted boldness. Friends, I hope you understand this. Don't be fooled by the, by the seeming you know, all togetherness of this congregation. If you wandered in here and it seems like everybody has it together, friends, they don't. I know they don't because I'm their pastor and their pastor doesn't have it all together. And believe me, friends, they don't have it all together. We are a jacked up group of pardoned rebels who are very much in progress. We can look good on Sunday morning in the foyer, but our lives, every one of them in this room today, is marked by struggle, by sin, and by working out the grace of God in our lives. Friends, do not be fooled. We are very much a people in progress. And in order to be a people who are honest about where we truly are, we need a sort of collective, broken-hearted boldness as we engage one another's sin. And that's what Paul is advocating here. And then he says in verse 3, go to verse 3 of chapter 5, he says, sounds sort of strange to our modern American vernacular. We wouldn't talk like this, but remember the New Testament is being translated from another language, Greek, into English. And so some things kind of come across a little awkwardly. And this is a particular situation in verse three. He says, for though I'm absent in body, I'm in present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, when the power, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man to Satan. And so Paul is saying that it's not some mystical sort of channeling of Paul's spirit. What he's basically saying is that, hey, listen, This church was founded by Jesus. I am Jesus' apostle. I carry with myself Jesus' authority. And because of the authority of the gospel, because of what the scriptures say, because of the truth of Christ and his life, uh, you now have the authority as a church, as part of the body of Christ, to take this action. This is not some legal thing. This is not referencing constitution or bylaws or the fact that the United States recognizes us as a corporation or we have officers or anything. What Paul is saying is because you are a New Testament church founded by Christ, 
you have a measure of Christ's authority as a collective group of people to take this action. And Paul is appealing to them corporately to exercise the authority that they have in Christ. And then in verse, verse 5, he says this really striking, seemingly harsh, but very loving thing. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What is Paul saying there? What does that mean? Well, we have to understand what he means by the word flesh there. Flesh is not literally the, the skin and bones and muscle, muscle tissue of this man. That word that we have translated flesh in English might be more fully translated as a mode of life that is lived in pursuit of its own ends, an attitude of self-sufficiency without reliance upon God. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, hand this man over to Satan, which sounds like a harsh phrase, but he's saying, put this man out of the church so that he will be given up from support and endorsement of the church so that by his, sort of think of it this way, by the stilts being kicked out from underneath him that he is propping himself up on, he will, will be stripped away of the confidence that the church is giving him and hopefully it will cause him to lose confidence in his own flesh that in the hope he will turn to the Lord when all of his scaffolding and all of his crutches have fallen away from him. Now, you may be wondering, what about that word, that word that he's handed over to Satan? Doesn't that seem kind of harsh? Well, friends, that's how, that's, Paul, listen, that, that is instructive to us as Americans. We grow up in a culture where we think basically everybody's just kind of Christian, and that's just, America's a Christian country. America is not a Christian nation. Nations aren't Christian. People are, church, are Christian. Churches are Christian. The whole world, the Bible says, lies in the sway of the evil one. Do you realize how stark of a contrast Paul is making between the people of Christ and the people who are not Christ's people? And Paul sees this distinction between those who have been redeemed and those who are not. Now, of course, as we know, the church is not to encapsulate itself and be in a bunker against the world. We are to advance the gospel into the world, shining Christ's light into the world. But do you realize how clearly Paul sees a distinction between life within the New Testament church and outside of the church. He sees life outside of the church correctly and biblically so to be under the realm of the prince of the power of air. As Ephesians 2 says, the whole world is in that course. And we just kind of, well, I mean, he's just going from church to church, whatever. We take very, very lightly something that Paul takes very, very seriously, and that is the clarity of the Christian life as it is lived out in the local church. And so what Paul is saying here in summary is he's saying, for the good of this brother, so that we will knock away all opportunities for him to think that he's okay, for the good of this brother, we are going to set him out into the world we can't make a statement for whether or not he's born again or not. We're not saying that he's not a Christian. Only God can judge a person's soul. But the church has a special responsibility to be the earthly validation of our testimony. And what Paul is saying is, is that we as a church need to remove his assurance in his earthly testimony because we're not sure that he's really a Christian anymore. He may say he is, but he's living a life that's contrary to it. And so again, only the Lord can judge a heart. That's not to say that if a person's in sin that they're not a Christian, but it means to say that if we are willfully disobeying God, the church must, must, for the good of that person, put them out of the church so that God can deal with them, much like the prodigal son. The father lets him go, squander his inheritance outside of the father's estate, hoping and trusting that as he, as he loses all self-reliance because he's given himself over to the world, that even in that providence, God would call him back. And that's exactly what's happening here. Paul is saying, for the good of the person in unrepentant sin, you as a church must take action and hand this brother, put him out of the church. And we'll talk about more specifically what that looks like in a moment. Reason number two. 
Okay, reason number one is for the good of the person in unrepentant sin. Reason number two Paul gives for this is for the good of the church, corporate, the whole church. Paul says there comes time when you must, with brokenhearted boldness, excommunicate people in unrepentant sin for their own good and for the good of the whole church. Let's go to verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven was this, obviously this cooking ingredient, and it was the Jewish custom to, when they would, they would make bread with it, and the custom was is to week to week make more batches or doughs of bread, and sometimes they would use a little bit of the leaven from the previous week's batch to kind of stretch it and make the new batch go and kind of add to it to kind of preserve. But in the Old Testament, uh, part of the instruction for the Jews as they prepared for the Passover feast was to not use any of last week's leaven for this new batch of dough, uh, but to completely discard the old leaven and start afresh. And this, of course, is just seeming some, you know, it's like Old Testament you know, cooking show or whatever, but it has a more beautiful symbol. What God is doing is he's using this as a picture for Christ who is the Passover lamb and to prepare our hearts for Jesus. And so now he's picking up on that Old Testament analogy and he's, now he's, the, the, the symbol is, is that this man in his sin becomes part of this old leaven that is working its way in a diseased sort of way through the whole batch of dough and spoiling the whole loaf of bread. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, or the picture there is this man and his sin, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival Festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and envy, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Oh, friends, these three verses, 6, 7, and 8, are so full of imagery and symbol and a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel. We could spend all of our time just on this, but very, very quickly, let me just make a couple points under this point number two here, of that we should excommunicate people in unrepentant sin for the good of the church. First is that we are all endangered by indifference or tolerance to sin. Mark Dever, a pastor that I respect greatly in Washington, D.C., I heard him preach on this passage uh, uh, several weeks ago, and by the way, I, I have been uh, greatly helped by his thoughts. Much of what I'm speaking on today comes out of his flow and line of thinking. He said about this, that sin, listen to this, sin that no one deals with eventually becomes sin that everyone deals with. We are all endangered by indifference to sin or tolerance in the life of people in our church. Look, in the, look now at verse 2. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are. So what, what Paul is saying is he's saying now, he's saying clean out this brother, not so that when you clean out this brother, you will become a pure church, but he's saying that you are Christ's church. Look, he's saying you already are this, you already are are unleavened, so be, church, who you already are. Be who you already are, he, ha he says in verse 7. And what's the whole purpose of this? For the good of the church corporate. Look at verse 8. Let us, therefore, after we have done this thing, after we have with broken-hearted boldness, graciously and courageously dealt with this brother in unrepentant sin, then let us therefore celebrate the festival. In other words, Passover, not with old leaven, leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Do you see what's happening here? Paul is saying, take this action, and by taking this action, it paves the way for your heart corporately as a church to be freed up to worship God in sincerity and truth. So that, here's the point, conversely on the other side, when we as a church, when we as people don't deal with unrepentant sin in our church body, we are gunked up. It's like mud in the spokes of our tire. It it's inhibits us from being the church that we are called to be, which then inhibits us from 
displaying Christ like we were supposed to be displaying him, which then inhibits people from coming to Jesus because of the, the reticence, the gunk, the inhibition of a church who is not freed to worship God in sincerity and truth. So what's, what's on the line here are so many things. The soul of the particular person, the worship of that church and their growth in the gospel, and the display of Christ to an onlooking world who needs a clear representation of the grace of our Lord. Do you see how many levels are impacted here? Not only the individual, but the whole church corporate. And then the witness of the gospel is on the line here. So we are to excommunicate brothers for, number one, the good of the person in unrepentant sin. Number two, the good of the church. And point number three, we're to do it because it is the responsibility of the church. And when I mean the church, I mean all of us who are members of Crosspoint. Let's read in verse 9 through 13. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would, you would need to go out of the world. So what he's saying is, I've told you not to associate with Christians who are in unrepentant sexual sin, but then he gives it a little caveat, kind of like a little parenthesis, and he's saying, but I'm not talking about don't associate with people who aren't Christians who are living in sin and sexual immorality, and he listens to a few other things, because then he says, if you weren't to associate with people who weren't Christians who were in these type of sins, there wouldn't be anybody to associate with. You'd have to leave this world. So in other words, this world is broken. I mean, it's broken. And so what he's saying here is, I mean, that wouldn't leave anybody. That's all what I'm saying. I'm not saying, I'm not saying bunker up and don't talk to people and you know, be some sort of reclusive sect. What he's saying is, is that treat people that claim to be Christians in a different way for the sake of their own good. Let's keep going. Verse 11. But now... I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother, in other words, claims to be a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler. I'm not sure what a reviler is, but I think I've been one in the past. It's just a word, just revile, just causing trouble, man, just reviling. Drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And by the way, let me just throw in a little caveat. When Paul lists things in the New Testament, especially lists of sins, don't read that list of sin and say, Whew, mine wasn't mentioned. <laughs> when he's listing sins, it's usually in context, probably things that are coming to his mind that he is aware of in that particular church. And so we're talking about all of human brokenness here. I mean, if you're like, yes, I don't think I'm a reviler. Awesome. No, no, Paul, Paul is speaking to all unrepentant sin here. And so what he's saying is, I'm writing to you not to associate with that brother. And then he says in verse 12, listen to this. Remember what we quoted at the beginning? Matthew 7, Jesus' words, judge not lest you be judged. What does that mean in the full context of the New Testament? In verse 12, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? In other words, what right is it for me to look at some unbeliever and judge them for their life? Look, that's what people do. That's what people that don't know God do. People, look, there can be some relatively moral people outside of the church, certainly, that don't know Jesus. But for the most part, when a person's mind is not set on God, as Romans 8 says, it, they can't obey God. People sin, man. We should not be shocked at the immorality and brokenness of the world. That's the world. And Paul says, what right do I have to do judging the outsiders? Then he says, listen to this, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? That's a rhetorical question, meaning, yes. It is those inside the church who you have a special responsibility, New Testament church, Cross Point Church of Columbus, Georgia. You have, we have corporately a special responsibility to engage one another's unrepentant sin with broken-hearted boldness. And he continues in verse 13, and he says, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay, well, uh, let's think about what this looks like in the context of not associating with uh, a brother or sister who's in unrepentant sin. One thought here. And this, this is not yet my list at the end for you guys working in the booth. This is just a couple thoughts underneath this last point, number three. 
It's the responsibility of the whole church. We are to judge one another. Friends, this is not the responsibility of just the pastors or elders. Paul is not writing 1 Corinthians to just a few men who are in charge of the church. At the beginning of the letter, he addresses it to all the saints in Corinth. And in this situation, he is writing to the church that they all corporately must take action. We have sort of developed a governance structure that I think is very unbiblical in most American churches where the pastors are sort of tasked with dealing with all of that stuff and you pastors just serve us, we just need ministry, just preach to us, sing us the right songs, develop programs for us and we'll just consume and consume and consume. Friends, that's not biblical. And then what it gives rise to, if if pastors in those type of contexts are trying to do church discipline, what happens is they sort of deal with it behind closed doors and there will be somebody maybe on staff or a prominent person in the church who falls into sin and all of a sudden it's like a trap door. You know, Bob is, he's here, or Joe or whatever he's he's doing, he's in the church and then all of a sudden he falls into sin and and because we want to avoid scandal, because God forbid anything inhibit our ability to do public ministry, we just all of a sudden there's a trap door and Bob or Joe's gone. And then it's like, "Where's, where's, where's, where's Joe? Joe, who? What? What? Joe, you know, he's like, like, he's the one we do not speak of. I mean, what? I mean, it just becomes this strange culture where just the pastors of the church are forced to deal with sin. And because they're under such extreme pressure, they just want to keep the machine rolling. And so we never actually deal with it. And it doesn't become for the good of that brother or the good of the church. It's just some sort of backdoor, trapdoor operation. That is not biblical. Paul says that the whole church has to deal with this sin. Friends, that's why we need to do family meetings every other month. Because if a brother or sister is engaged in unrepentant sin in this church, it would be better for us to deal with that together on a Sunday night. And friends, if it happens, and I pray it does not, that will be the environment that we deal with it with graciousness. And we'll talk about it here, how we do that. It's not like if we hear that you've got some issue in your life, that you're in some sin, the next Sunday night we're going to bring it up. No, friends, that's not it. I know some of you are squirming in your seats right now. (laughs) That's not the way it works. We'll talk about how it works here in just a second. But friends, it is the whole church's responsibility. It is your responsibility as a member of this church to bring people into the church, and it is our corporate responsibility to set people out of church so that that responsibility does not rest on one or two or three elders. Friends, it is our corporate responsibility. Paul is writing to the church, not to one or two people. And then what does it mean when he says don't associate with them? What does that mean? Don't even eat with them. Friends, if a person gets excommunicated from a New Testament church or from Crosspoint, does that mean that they cannot attend church here anymore? No. It means that we are officially telling them that they are no longer a member of this church. And what we are saying to them is that because of their actions, that we as a church body can no longer validate their testimony of salvation. Again, only God judges hearts. This does not mean that Christians do not sin. Of course Christians sin. But when a Christian is in willful, unrepentant sin, the church owes it to that person to say to them, we can no longer validate whether or not you are truly a Christian. And so we are putting you out of the official membership of the church. But our heart is still for that person in reconciliation and restoration. And so we would want them to come to church on Sunday, hopefully here, so that they could hear the gospel, so that they could turn back to the Lord, so that they could be restored, so that they could repent, so that they could be reconciled. We don't shun this person and write up an obituary in the paper and act as if we never knew them, but our relationship with them changes fundamentally. Listen to this. This is important. Our relationship changes with a brother or sister who is in unrepentant sin, who we have gone through the steps with that they have resisted, who ultimately, as the final act, we have to put outside of the church. Our relationship changes with them from one of fellowship with a brother or sister who we know is a Christian to now one of evangelism to whom we cannot validate their testimony. And so can we interact with them? Yes, But our posture towards them changes from one of cozy, familial fellowship 
to one of speaking the gospel to them because we don't know. We can no longer validate where their soul is. Again, only God judges the hearts, but God gives us a special responsibility to validate testimonies and we don't want to be cozy or blasé with that person because if we do that, we are lying to them about the seriousness of their sin. And so our relationship with them transitions from one of fellowship to evangelism where we are intent in speaking the gospel to them in the hopes that they might turn back to the Lord. That's what it means not to associate with a brother or sister in unrepentant sin that has been excommunicated from the church. So now three thoughts, three thoughts on how this works out in our life together. And there is so much more we could say. Three thoughts on how this works out in our life together. The first is is that Jesus gives instruction on how we should deal with sin and conflict, by the way, which is what we'll talk about next week if I don't get snowed in with my wife, which which I'm kind of hoping for. But this is what, Lord willing, we will deal with next week in 1 Corinthians 6 about how Christians should sue each other. So Jesus here gives instructions on dealing with sin and conflict in the church. This is the progression. It's not like if we hear about your sin, we call a business meeting next night and say, hey, Joe, (laughs) we hear that you're gone. See it. That's not it at all, friends. This is a long, gracious, thorough process behind the scenes before it ever becomes public, should it necessarily become public. Jesus gives these instructions. Matthew 18, he says in verse 15, and this is on the first level here, when we interact with one another in brokenhearted boldness. He says in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So there's this one another gritty, brokenhearted boldness that happens on an on-the-ground grassroots level between us when we are aware of failure. We need clarification or something just seems shady or we heard something. We don't gossip about it. We don't call the phone tree. We, We... We pray, we humble ourselves, we remember what Edward says, we examine our own lives, and we go to this brother and sister and say, hey, well, maybe I'm hearing this wrong, I don't know, but is this true? I mean, uh, brother, are you, is this how you're living right now, or is this thing? And th- by the way, this also relates to conflicts. Did you say this about me? Is this the way you feel? And you go in utter humility, not defensive. And then he says in verse 16, but if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if, there, if that first little interaction doesn't seem to solve the problem and the brother or sister's like, yeah, bro, I've been having this problem. Pray with me, man. Pray with me. Pray with me. I'm struggling with this sin. Pray with me. Help me. Help me. We need to go to the pastors, man. We need to talk to Reynolds and Don and Brad. We need to go to Will. We, come on, help. Let's, let's go. My soul is more important. That's what should happen there. But if it doesn't happen then that person should go back to that person with a couple witnesses, maybe the pastors of the church or that person's small group leader or somebody that has some spiritual maturity. maturity. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Come to the church leadership. Let us know. And that word church there means more than just church leadership, but that would be an appropriate next step to come to the church leadership and say, hey, we, we need you to help us arbitrate this dispute. And if he refuses to listen even to the church and the elders being the spokesperson, the mouthpiece of the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, disassociate with him. And so do you see this gracious, humble, limited, behind-the-scenes, broken-hearted boldness? It's not that you hear a rumor about a brother and you run to the pastors of the church and then the next meeting we have together, we we air our dirty laundry. Friends, that is not the way it works. This process can take months behind the scenes where people are going to one another in humility and brokenness and saying, brother, what is this? Look, I'm not, I know there's sin in my life too, and there's blind spots we all have, but brother, what, what's going on here? And if they refuse, then that's a trigger that there needs to be another level of care. And if they refuse that, then ultimately, and I pray this never happens, there comes a time when the church corporately must deal with it. And in the situation back in 1 Corinthians 5, it had gotten to such a point that this brother was in willful 
disobedience to the scripture. And Paul, echoing Jesus' words here, says, you must excommunicate this brother again for his own good and for the good of the church because it's your responsibility. And so, friends, that's how it works out in the life of a church. That's point number one on thoughts on how this works out. Number two, and this is so important, friends, the issue here is not whether there is sin in the church because there is. All of our lives are marked by remaining sin that has yet to be dealt with. The issue is not whether there is sin in the church, but whether there is true repentance. I've given you this quote many times before. William Arno, a British theologian in the 1800s, gives us this beautiful quote. He says that the difference between an unconverted and converted man, or in other words, a Christian and a non-Christian, is not that one has sins and the other has none. In other words, it's not the Christian who's perfect by any stretch of the imagination and the unconverted man has a bunch of sin. But listen to this, listen to this comparison here. He says, but the difference between these two is that the one, meaning the unconverted man, the non-Christian, takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God while the other takes part with a reconciled God against his dreaded sin. Friends, we all have issues. We all need sanctification. We all have sin. The issue is not whether we have sin. The issue is whether we are in a continual state of repentance and sorrow and growth, taking God's side against our sin. Do you see this? And so even if one of you or one of us in this church were caught in a situation like this brother was in 1 Corinthians 5, to be caught in that sin is not grounds for excommunication, but to be caught in that sin and then to continue in it willfully disobeying the scriptures and the counsel of your brothers, that is unrepentant sin. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is repentance, not sin. Finally, and I hope you understand this is our heart here. Point number three, restoration, not condemnation, is the goal of what Paul is writing to the Corinthians and to us. Restoration, not condemnation, is the goal. Let me read you two, let me read you two verses, and then we'll be done. Second Corinthians, we're in First Corinthians, but if you're following along, go over to Second Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. This is what Paul writes. This is now his second letter to the Corinthians. He actually wrote probably four letters, but only two of them made it into the New Testament. He's now writing a follow-up letter that we know of as 2 Corinthians. And he is now addressing a situation where there was sin in the life of a brother. And now he is encouraging the church to take this brother back because there seemed to be repentance in this brother. Now, there's much speculation by people who are commentators of the Bible that Paul may be speaking about this very brother that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 5. But most scholars think that he's probably talking about some other situation, specifically probably talking about the opponents that Paul had in the Corinthian church that he was correcting in his first letter to them. But either way, whether it is this brother who was in 1 Corinthians 5 that was caught in sin or whether it was some other situation understand Paul's heart now. Now he's writing to the Corinthians again in the second letter saying that this brother has turned from his sin. Now don't punish him. Bring him back into the fold. He says in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 5, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. In other words, this brother's sin has affected us all. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. In other words, this punishment that you have given of excommunicating him or this person, whatever it was, whether it was a 1 Corinthians 5 brother or some other situation, it's enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. And we can presuppose that underneath all of this is Paul's knowledge of this man's repentance. 
And so do you see Paul's heart here? It's not to kick this guy out because we've got a, a ministry machine to do here. We don't have time for people that got issues in their life. No, 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 no. That is not Paul's heart. He's saying bring this brother back into the fold. Now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and we end this with this. This is the ministry that God has given us as a church. It's a ministry of restoration and reconciliation and brokenhearted boldness. This passage is often used in an evangelistic sense about how we as a church should advance the gospel to people who don't know Jesus. And of course that is true. And of course I believe that is certainly an application of this scripture. But I think an application of this ministry that Paul says that he's given the church is also how we should deal with one another in our problems within the church. And he says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. For we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast outward of the outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Listen to this, verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. In other words, the love of Christ controls us to the point where we must interact with one another in this very difficult, rugged way for the sake of the good of our own souls and the sake of the good of the church and the advance of the gospel. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, Paul is saying at issue here in the local church is the fact that Christ died for us. That's our message. We're not just trying to do services here. We're not just trying to hush scandal in the church. We're not just trying to sweep sin under the rug. There's something much bigger than that. Christ and what he has done for sinners like us. From now on, therefore, verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't look down the end of their nose, our nose at somebody else's sin. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, oh, what a beautiful verse. Many of you have this memorized. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, listen to this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, collectively as a church. We implore you, whether you're a sinner in the church that has been put out, or whether you're a lost person that's never come into the church, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the heart here. Restoration, not condemnation. Friends, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know that I've mentioned him often, the German pastor, theologian, author, and martyr, martyr who was killed by Hitler two weeks before the end of the Second World War. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this about how we should love one another as a church. He said, nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. It is a ministry of mercy. Friends, if you are a member of this church, This truth that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 5 is absolutely essential for our health and for our ability to display Christ clearly to a world. Friends, do you realize that we grew up in a culture that presents institutions, churches, schools, jobs, businesses as something that is merely there for you to get something out of? Do you realize we grow up in a default of consumerism? And do you realize how opposite a direction the New Testament takes life together as a church? 
Friends, for the good of our own souls and for the display of Christ, it is essential that if you call this place home, that you hunker down here and that we as a church collectively engage one another with brokenhearted boldness because there's something bigger here on the line than my ministerial career or our, the vibe or the, the, the word about us in the community. Who cares whether or not we are a place that people want to come to if we are tolerating Things like this that wreck our ability to advance the gospel. Friends, this chapter is advocating us to take seriously Christ, to take seriously the community that he calls us in, and to live together in broken-hearted boldness for the sake of our own souls and the sake of the advance of the gospel. And friends, if you realize that you have never trusted in Jesus and that has become clear to you today, Or maybe you knew that coming into this room. Friends, do not misinterpret this message. This is not Christian judgmentalism. This is is biblical gospel love. We want to love another so well, so deeply, in such a rugged way that we are willing to go to the mat for one another because we don't want to lose anybody by our insecurity of not handling one another's sin. I would rather stay a church of four or 500 people than grow unhealthy. In fact, I would rather shrink if it means that we're going to be more biblical and more rugged and more committed to truly living Christ and his ways in this world because the church, this world does not need a church this big and slick and as a big ministry machine. The world needs a group of broken-hearted, bold, pardoned rebels who are intent on displaying Christ and loving one another in such a way that he is lifted up. That's what the church should be. So if you have never trusted in Christ, for instance, <laughs> what good is it to waste an hour on a long message about an unexciting topic? If you walk out of this room and you haven't trusted in Jesus, oh, friends, my heart is broken for you. What good is it? Why are you even here today? Have you trusted in Jesus? not asking if there's sin in their life. Friends, my life is marked by hypocrisy. My life is marked by continuing battles of sin. That by the power alone of the gospel and the people that God has given me, by God's grace, I am experiencing some measure of victory over, but my life is marked by struggle with sin. Friends, we have an advocate, and his name is Christ. And without trusting in him, you stand guilty. Without a mediator between you and a holy God who is not impressed with your relative morality. Friends, if you have not trusted in Christ, why, why, how could you not do that right now? How could you not? How could you not trust in Christ? What are you trusting in? What what is more lovely? What is more beautiful than this? What, What a scandal of love this is. Why? 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 Did you grow up in the church and you've never really connected with Jesus and now pride is keeping you back from really giving your heart? Friends, don't be that. Don't be that kid. Trust in Christ. Young husband, is there some secret in your life right now that if we could find it out, you'd be mortified? Why are you treasuring that broken thing? Trust in Christ. He is better than anything this world has to offer. He is better than that. I know that by experience, and I know that by the scriptures. He's better. Come to Christ now. Trust in him. Repent. Turn from your sin. And trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, would you come now? And would you do two things? Number one, for the Christians that are in this room, Lord, would you 
Would you tattoo? Would you stamp? Would you chisel into our hearts this way of living together in brokenhearted boldness? For the apathetic and lazy Christian in this room, God, would you stir their heart? Would you grab them by the collar and would you jerk them into reality so that they would see how important life together as a body is? God, would you stir the hearts of your people for the sake of your bride, the church? And secondly, God, would you, for people that are in this room who have not yet trusted in you, whether they realize that or not, whether they think they have and truly haven't, or whether they are aware that they haven't and are honest about their spiritual condition, God, would you give them the gift of repentance and faith? Would they stop trusting in themselves? they trust in what Christ has done? Would they not be lied to by the devil? Would they realize that we are all broken? We are all sinners. We all stand by nature and by choice as rebels against you. And the difference between a child of God and a person who does not know you is not that one has sin and the other doesn't, but it's repentance. And then when we repent, you are good and gracious to forgive us of all our sins and to knit us together with a group of people and to help us treasure Christ and his lovely, beautiful, his lovely, beautiful person over all of these rotten apples that we chase. Lord, would you do that for a person in this room who doesn't know you? Would they turn from sin? Would they turn from sin? And would they trust in you? Jesus took on his shoulders the penalty for our rebellion and our sin. He died. He absorbed your wrath. He became our punishment. He carried our sin away and he rose in victory over the grave and death and sin. And now, right now, he commands us all to trust in him. So, Lord, would that person do that right now even as I'm praying? I pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' good name. Amen.